You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 34. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Thank you so much for spending time with me today, whether it's Thursday or a totally different day for you. In today's episode, we're speaking with Eric Zimmer of the One You Feed podcast. Eric and his podcast are really awesome, and I highly encourage you to go check it out on iTunes. It has a lot of great advice. In this show, we're going to talk about the parable of the two wolves that inspired the One You Feed title. And we're going to discuss those two wolves, and I call them in my own work, the ego versus intuition. We're going to discuss them from a large evolutionary standpoint. And then we're later in the second half of the episode going to really narrow it in and focus on our own daily experiences of those two wolves and how we can overcome things like comparison in our lives. And we're also going to have a fascinating conversation about meditation. And this conversation about meditation, I think, is going to make the concept of meditating feel much more approachable and doable for people. In fact, I didn't even think I meditated before having that conversation, but through talking to Eric, I realized that I have been meditating, even though I didn't think I was. So there's a lot of great ideas that feel very, very approachable for people that normally may not think they meditate or may not be interested in it. Let's go to the show. Welcome, Eric. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. I am thrilled to have you here and to introduce you to my audience because I have a feeling that you might be a new voice for some of my listeners. So why don't we talk about your background and how you got to where you are? Sure. Well, I have I have quite a diverse background. I mean, most of my career has been in a lot of software startup companies, so a lot of entrepreneurship. I also own a solar energy company currently. And the newest thing that I've really been spending a lot of time on is my new podcast called The One You Feed. So my background is I, I struggled with uh, alcohol and, and drug addiction early in my life. So I, I didn't really get started on anything career-wise till I was about 25. So prior to that was sort of, you know, from 18 to then was sort of a black hole. So I kind of came out of that and um, no, no real college education, not no real, none, no college education. And sort of just, I stumbled into doing some work. I started as a, as a customer service representative for one of the first online companies, CompuServe. I mean, this was way, way back before the internet was really any big thing. The only way to really get online was to use your dial-up modem and connect to, to this company. And so that sort of started my career. And I just, I got, I got lucky in that that wasn't really what I wanted to be doing, but it gave me for the first time what felt like a path to something that I did want to do. Like I saw the chance to be successful in, in some way. And so I really went after it and worked hard. And through a series of events, I ended up landing at a startup company. Well, actually, I'll back up just a little bit because I got laid off from that job. Uh, AOL bought CompuServe and I got laid off from that job my wife at the time was pregnant with my son and I got laid off and I was kind of freaked out because this was the first job I'd ever had. I'd gotten promoted a bunch of times, but still I didn't have any real, no college degree. I'd only been working there for about a year. And so I took some of the money I got from that severance and invested it in some training. It was the first example of a phenomenon that happens often in my life, which is that something that seems bad at the time turns out to be one of the best things that could ever happen to me. And that repeats over and over. But in this case, 
I uh, ended up with a startup company during the first dot-com boom, and that really just set my career off from there. And I spent my time at that company and others, you know, building software companies kind of from the ground up. And I really loved doing that. I love that process of taking something that doesn't really exist and, and making it into something and all the things that go into it. But then about five years ago, I got interested in solar energy and I started a solar energy company. I learned during that that you should not start a company that you know absolutely nothing about. So that's, <laughs> that's another life lesson there, or at least have a partner who knows what they're doing. Although I guess I just started a podcast without knowing anything about it. So maybe I haven't learned my lesson. <laughs> Well, it's going pretty good so far. So you know something about that. Yeah, the podcast is going well. And the solar company, uh, you know, has has had its its share of success on and off again. And then I also do some, some e-commerce consulting. Um, my son is 16. He's driving. Uh, he's a huge part of my life. I'm a musician, so I... I write songs. I write music. I think those are the main things. I've got three dogs. I love my dogs. What are their names? Sadie, Ralph, and Beans. <laughs> Why Beans? Because she's a Boston Terrier, like Boston baked beans. Oh, that's so and cute. And she's terribly gassy. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Okay, so let's talk about your podcast because I am fascinated with it. So excited to have you on and to actually talk about a lot of what you share in your own podcast or what you actually ask your own guests. I'm excited to put you in the hot seat this time. So let's talk about the one you feed. Why is it called the one you feed? And why are there two wolves on the cover? The podcast is called The One You Feed, and it's based on an old parable. Uh, it's called The Parable of Two Wolves. Nobody really knows where it comes from or what its origin was. I mean, for a while, people were saying it was Cherokee Indian, but that seems to have been disproved. So who knows where it came from? Well, how did you find this parable? I, you know, I first heard it, you know, I mentioned being in recovery from alcoholism and, and drug addiction, and I heard it in some of those uh, recovery programs. I heard somebody say it once, and it really struck me as being like a good parable should be saying an awful lot and teaching an awful lot in a very short uh, time. So the parable goes, there's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson and he says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle with each other. And one is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear and the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. Then he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. Brilliant. The, that's the parable. And the show is basically me asking a series of people I find interesting. So we have authors, we have musicians, we have spiritual teachers, we have psychologists, we have self-help people. We have anybody that I find to be compelling or interesting and I ask them what that question means to them in their life and in their work. And we talk through that. Usually there's some reason, there's something in their work that speaks to me about that parable. And we kind of we go through that. So the parable is really just the, the jumping off point. All right. So what does it mean to you? I know you always ask that. So I want to ask you. I should have been prepared for this. I should have known. <laughs> I do this to my guests all the time. I don't, get to, I don't get to prepare. I think the parable is, most answers to it revolve around this idea of a choice. I think that, that at the heart of the parable, it's saying, look, you've got a choice. You, we all contain a multitude of elements. We all contain a lot of different things, and we have, we have a lot of 
instinctual pulls in a lot of different directions. But we have a choice in which of those we want to put our energy to, which of those we want to encourage and foster and bring out, and which ones perhaps we don't want to spend time or energy on. And so the, the parable to me is about that choice. And the really important part is the awareness or consciousness that we're making that choice all the time. It's wonderful. I actually have a class called Life with Intention Online, which my listeners probably know about by now. But I'll say that when I was doing the deep work that went into it, initially, I didn't start there. But when you really, really look deeply at any area, it always boils down to the most elemental piece. And I deeply believe that the most elemental level of our experience in life goes down to those two wolves, which you call them. In my work, I call it the ego and the intuition. And it's fascinating to hear that you have this whole podcast devoted to this topic because it's so powerful. Because if we can't see those two voices within ourselves and separate them, like you said, we don't have the choice to follow. We're just following the one that barks the loudest and is the most snarly, which is always the ego. So it's wonderful to hear that you are really forwarding that idea of choice and, and giving people the awareness that they they have both, but they get to choose. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot lately about things that we talk about from an evolutionary perspective. And if you look at how we're evolutionarily w- wired, we just tend to default towards negative things or we tend to default towards the ego because there's there's a strong... Uh, instinctual uh, evolutionary pull. And a great example would be a lot of people are programmed to focus on the negative. We focus on a negative thing. We'll notice that far quicker than a positive stimulus. If presented with a positive and negative stimulus, we're most likely going to focus on and notice the negative stimulus. The threat. Right. The threat. And it's, it's good. It's good evolutionary programming because you, you know, you want to notice the snake or the, the, the bad wolf or the, the tiger. You can't afford to not notice that one. You can afford to not notice the extra berry laying on the ground. You, you get to live through that. That is just a simple fact for a lot of people. I know it's true for me, right? That's just where my mind will go. So being aware of that, that awareness allows me to go, okay, that's the evolutionary pull, but that's not necessarily the route I want to go. And we've had a couple people on the show who've said evolution is great for survival, but not necessarily for happiness. And I think we're at an unprecedented time in human history where for most of us, survival is not something that we have to spend a whole lot of time on. Evolution just simply is in no way prepared to keep up with the speed at which our culture is evolving. And just to quickly clarify for anyone that's confused on the word ego, I call that the that stream of consciousness, that fire hydrant that's spewing off in your head, telling you constantly what you want, think, and feel that makes you feel separate, special, inferior, not good enough, all of the, that lazy, that guilty part of us. That's the ego. Just quickly to, to explain that a little bit deeper. I think we have that part of our brains, but I think the one that we feed depends on our awareness of which one we're paying attention to. There's no doubt. I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think as long as we've had consciousness, the ability to think about the fact that we're thinking or metaconsciousness, I, I would think as soon as that sort of came into us, we started to be able to realize that, you know, there are good and uh, bad I, I'm not a fan of good and bad, but let's call it skillful and, and unskillful ways. I've been reading a book a little bit about 
why are people helpful? Why are they altruistic? Is there an evolutionary reason behind it? And it does seem that there is because being part of a group is safer. And it, the author talks about this idea of I give you something, you give me something back, this sort of tit for tat thing and why we're wired to respond to someone who does something nice for us because it's evolutionarily programmed that you've got to, you've got to do that interaction. In order for the species to survive. Yeah. Are you reading Simon Sinek? No, I'm reading Jonathan Haidt and his book is, it's, it's H-A-I-D-T and it's called The Happiness Hypothesis. And I've read it many times. I think it's one of the most brilliant books I've read. That's fascinating. Just to go clarify what we're saying. So yes, I think there's maybe two layers here. There's one, there's the lizard brain that we have, but then there's also the awareness of the wolves, which is kind of separate to that. And that brings out the element of choice. And I think it's fascinating to think about over time, how there's been eras and, and cultures that have really focused on the intuition side of the equation versus reacting solely from the fearful blizzard brain or bad wolf, if you will. Isn't that interesting to see that it, maybe it's more of like a right. heartbeat than it's just like we're slowly after the last 500 years starting to realize we don't need it. It's actually become on and off more and less needed depending on how much our society and culture gives value to it. Yeah, I certainly think culture is a huge influencer. So I think our evolutionary programming is just one part of what drives things. Um, I think it's an interesting lens to view things through. I also think it's a limited lens because culture is a huge impact on us. And I think you can certainly say that there are cultural differences in like, say the same culture, like American culture over time. And you can also, there's clear cultural differences between, you know, Western culture and Eastern culture. And a Western culture is much more focused on by and large. Now this is all changing, but traditionally is more focused uh, Western culture has got a lot more individualism, a lot more, you know, f freedom is a is a real value. Being have, being able to do my own thing is a real value. Where Eastern societies traditionally have been much more of a common good value that 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 resonates a lot more strongly traditionally. So culture, I think, plays a huge role. Yeah, what do you think our culture is at right now with it? I think our culture is. I think what's interesting is I think our culture is fracturing in that for a long time there was not too many voices. So if you looked outside yourself for voices, there were only so many. Printing press, you had Benjamin Franklin <laughs> with his pamphlets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had printing press, you had books, you had publishers, which was relatively limited. You had when the advent of radio, there were a few radio stations, the advent of TV. And now we're in a world where it's just, it's overwhelming the number of voices that are out there. It's, it's staggering to me. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how that manifests itself over time. But I think it's harder and harder for me to get a feel on the culture as a whole, because it seems like there's a lot more subculture brewing. But I think by and large, our culture is one that tends to feed the bad wolf. And I, and I don't mean that like, because to me, the bad, you know, feeding the bad wolf is, you know, we talked to, I, I said it represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And, and so it's not like, it's not a culture of like, we're going out and killing people. In a lot of ways, I think the world gets increasingly more humane. But if you look at the message that we put out culturally, by and large, from a media perspective, it's very much about what you don't have. It's very much driven by 
We know that newspapers sell things based on fear. We know that advertisers sell things based on creating a sense of lack or of want or desire in you for something you don't have. And so those messages are coming at us all the time. Absolutely. And it's really because, like we've said, it's easier to pay attention to the bad wolf because it's more evolutionarily programmed to be at the forefront of our minds, even if it's not necessary. So it's kind of like a cheap trick (laughs) that the media plays on us to get us to react. Yeah. And I, you know, this, this idea that there's like, that the media plays as a whole is, I, I always, when I hear that, I'm like, well, that sounds like there's some, you know, concentrated organization. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a lot driven by what what does sell and what does engage us if we're in our default mode. Exactly. I'm not saying that there is a small group of people. I just think it's the most effective way to get results that they're looking for in order to sell advertising, for example. That's right. And 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 those are things that are very easily triggered in us. Those are things that get fear gets our attention. Like we talked about earlier, we're programmed to oh threat. Okay. Pay attention. I'm going to notice that. I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of comparison. And uh, I think Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of happiness or the thief of joy. And I think it's such a poison in our lives. It's such a poison in my life because anytime I move into that comparison mode, I'm either looking at somebody, something that I, I perceive to be better than me and that I don't have, or I'm looking at someone that I perceive to be not as good as me and using that to make myself feel better. But in both those cases, what I'm not doing at all is connecting with other people. And I think that's more and more I grow convinced that that connection, connection in general, but connection to other people is a key part of feeding our good wolf or of, of creating a life that's worth living. And comparison just stops that dead in its tracks. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like the ego, basically, from A Course in Miracles perspective, which is a interesting thing that's not for everyone, but I'll say that their whole belief is that the ego basically is this tiny mad idea that we're all separate. And that's what makes us rank ourselves and all those other things. But the intuition is the part of us that realizes that we're all the same. I always say it's like water droplets. And it's like one water droplets in the marina saying how different it is than the water droplet outside of the marina. And really, they're like 12 feet apart. And they're made of the same exact chemical breakdown. But they're talking about how different they are when really there is such little difference in truth. Yeah. And that's such a tricky, that's such a challenging concept that I think I agree with intellectually. It makes sense to me. And yet to feel that in any way that helps transcend that separate sense of self is really so challenging. I found it interesting. We've had a few people on the show who very much come from a belief that the ultimate truth is non-duality, right? We're all one, we're all one thing. But they'll be the first to say, look, that's a great thing when you can experience it. But the rest of the time, you're living in a dual world. You are living in a world where you are for a lot of intents and purposes, you are a separate being. But I think that spiritual principle is helpful to try and reflect upon. I just find it, it is the opposite of the ego, right? They call it the difference between being asleep and being awake. Giving attention and acting on the thought that we are all separate and that we all need to like protect ourselves from one another, right? When really, if we could just wake up from that belief and recognize that we all can help one another, which is the intuition, 
But I think it's an interesting point because I've been thinking I've been thinking a lot about comparison, and and I in a second I'd like to ask you kind of how you think is a good way to deal with that. But I've been thinking about it, and again I've been I've been running things through an evolutionary lens, and I've been thinking, well, if for the mass amount of our human programming was we were in a small tribe, then this idea of status and beauty or money or all those things was so evolutionarily critical because it was such a small group of people. You know, there was one alpha and then no one else was, right? And so those things are a strong trigger when we feel them. But if you look at the world today, that is, again, not at all the world we live in. There is plenty of space, plenty of things for everybody to find their thing, to find their person, to make money. It's not that closed system that it was. But yet I still think that our instinct when we feel that is to, is to really latch on to those feelings of comparison, of feeling less than and those are just so damaging. I think sometimes we think we have to have everything in our lives exactly right. It's all got to be working for us to have a life that's meaningful and powerful. And sometimes that's just not the case. For some people at different times, for all of us at different times, there will be parts of our life we may not feel like we've got a handle on, but that doesn't lessen our ability to lead a good life and to, and to have power in the world, to have some influence, to do something positive. Most of us over comparison or uh, looking at what we don't have is drive because that's what it, it, it can turn into that drive, but it also can turn into that feeling bad and retreating from the world. And I think that's absolutely a liability in today's world. For my class, I always say, does it feel like you've gotten everything, but it's never enough? Or does it feel like you're not good enough? So why even try? Those are the two sides of the same coin. One's striving and one's like deliberately checking out. And neither one are getting you anywhere. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I like that because I, I do think that's a really, they, they are two sides of the same coin. You would ask me about comparison and what my response would be. I've done a lot of spiritual um, study. So I would pull on that to try to answer that question. And again, probably comes back to the Course in Miracles, which would say, the ego in comparison is just a manifestation of specialness. And again, if we are all the same, if we look at the lake as a body of water and we look at it as the body of water, no droplet is more special than another. It's all water, right? It's all the same. But the idea is the tiny mad idea that this water molecule in the marina thinks it's so different than the water molecule outside of the marina. Therefore, it's special. That is where the comparison becomes an issue. So I think it's just a tangent of specialness, which is just a part of the separateness that our ego clings to so desperately. Yeah. I'm always interested in like what I can do or what people can do when those feelings kind of come on strong and what, what are things that like, so I think that is a great one to sort of go through that thought exercise. Do you have any other ideas? Like all of a sudden it just, you know, it hits, I look and I see, you know, somebody who looks like they have everything I want and that feeling of envy or comparison. Do you have any, any tips for sort of dealing with it right there as it's coming? Is that something you, you have something to learn from or what, how do you, how would you handle that? Because I'm studying Gandhi, I don't know why, but for some reason in my own work, I just kind of felt this like urge to start studying him. 
I don't know why I just did. I, when I was stuck in the doing level of success, I realized Gandhi wasn't operating from there. So that used to become my cliche little answer as I was in that level and I was stuck there. I was like, I know Gandhi's not doing it, but I don't know how Gandhi did it. So that I just always used to say that. And then recently I was like, all right, well, why don't you just go start studying him? Let's go find out what he did really. So as I'm reading about him in this idea of nonviolent non-cooperation, I've been reading from an internal perspective because he's looking and working with people and, and cultures and, and countries, but really it goes back. It's all the same, right? It all goes back to the ego versus intuition. And what he basically was is the voice of the intuition in a world that was full of ego. And so he overcame it by nonviolent non-cooperation. My answer to that would be is to first of all, look at the f- and to recognize, okay, I'm having this feeling. I am having this feeling. This has nothing to do with anything outside of myself. And if I'm having this feeling, this is just that wolf. And I don't think that the wolf is bad. I think that wolf is scared. It's scared because it feels like it's separate and therefore it needs to protect itself or inflate itself. So I would just recognize that's that wolf. And I would do the nonviolent, non-cooperation technique, which Gandhi did, which would basically be to watch it, to firmly love that wolf, because that's what Gandhi did. He actually loved the English people as much as he loved his own countrymen. He just didn't follow the actions that the British took upon the Indians to remove their rights as people. So the idea would be to love that wolf, not to hate that wolf or beat up that wolf or, or hit it with a stick, but to love it, but not follow it. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way to look at it because I do think that if we try and resist all those feelings by shoving them away, I think that can be can be challenging. So I like sort of I like thinking of it in that way of not cooperating but not not hating either. Yeah, nonviolent non-cooperation. <laughs> so I hear you, I see you, I love you, and no I'm not going to take that action. Exactly. Yeah. So how are you working on it? I know you're thinking about this a lot. So what have you come up with so far for yourself? I think the only thing I have come up with, and it's sort of the way I've been, I did a mini episode recently where I talked about rumination and rumination sort of being that spinning around the same thoughts we've had before and getting, getting nowhere new. What I've sort of learned on that topic is there isn't a good way out of it. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem, so to speak. And so what I do is I change the channel. I just say, all right, no. Thought comes up. I can recognize that it's there. I don't have to say that it's bad, but I just am not going to play with it. I'm not going to indulge it. And so I talked about some positive concentration activities that we can do to get our minds off of it. My favorite one, the one that I think is actually most effective because it A, is concentration and B, it's really positive is I call it the, the alphabet gratitude game, I guess. And I have to start with A and I just have to go through the alphabet and think of something I'm grateful for, for every letter. That's brilliant. I love that. How far down the alphabet do you go? Oh, I've, I, I usually, I mean, I tend to end around M because by about M, I'm usually <laughs> feeling, feeling good. pretty, pretty good, <laughs> but I've gotten further. Sometimes I'll start at N, but I think the, the key is that at least for me, when I, when I, when I'm, when I have one of those thoughts that is emotionally powerful for me and starts swirling around my brain, if it's something that triggers something in me that I felt many times before, and I have a tendency to, to, to swirl on, it's not enough for me to say, I'm not going to think about it because that just doesn't work. And it's not enough for me to try and think something positive about it because I'm emotionally 
you know, I could look at somebody who has things and I, I could say, well, there's no real difference between me and him. And those things don't make you happy. And those, and, and that just doesn't seem to really work for me. I'm, Cause it's still comparing, right? That's You're right. Still comparing at that point. You're still rationalizing, which is the, that wolf too. Exactly. Yep. That's a great, yeah, I never, never really connected that. So what I do is I just go, all right, we're not doing that. We're going to do something else. And I honestly think at that point, anything is better. Turning on the TV, if that takes your mind off of it, is better. Because I really do believe that we create ruts in our mind. We create patterns in our mind. You know, we, we create neurons. I call it a river. It gets raging. You have to divert it. Exactly. And so every time I'm thinking that, I'm making that thing deeper and harder to get out of. So I'm at the point where I just believe zero tolerance policy. I'm going to distract myself somehow. You know, counting backwards from 100 will work. But my, I've got to give my brain something that it can hang on to and something, that it, something else that engages it more than those thoughts. I happen to like the positive gratitude one because not only it's a game, because gratitude can be like, eh, okay, think of something you're grateful for when you start comparing. Okay, I can do that. But there's nothing in that for my brain to really grasp onto. There's no challenge in it, but you suddenly make it alphabetical like that. And now your brain is working and it's working on something positive. I think it's a really great thing. I think this is a great example, but I do think that we have to be aware not to numb ourselves and to, to distract ourselves on a deeper, more pervasive level throughout our lives because a lot of addictions can form I think about Brene Brown when I say this stuff. She talks a lot about the numbing and why we, we do it to quiet that voice, essentially. And it, and it helps us to disconnect to those feelings. But it's not really connecting us to that other wolf. It's just distracting or diverting attention. What do you think? Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, I, as someone who poured the better, you know, years of his life down the addiction hole, I'm pretty familiar with that, <laughs> with that approach and that it's not, not effective. And I agree if there are fundamental things that, that there is, there are things that we have to do on a positive side that help us to grow as people so that we don't go to those places as often. I just know for me, sometimes when I'm in one of them, there, there isn't, there's no good road out for me. I'm so far down and I'm so far in the river at that point that all I need to do sometimes is get to the shore. And then once I'm back on dry land, then I can start to, you know, do all these different things. It's sort of like the analogy I will give is there's a, a term in, in psychology called being flooded, right? And it's, if you get, you're in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden it starts getting heated and you just reach a certain point where you are, you are emotionally flooded and you are not going to be able to have a good conversation. The, the, the chances to be reasonable and compassionate and caring and work through the problem, it's gone in that moment. The only thing to do is to retreat, get yourself back into a frame of mind that's not so triggered and then try again. And that's sort of the, that's sort of what I'm talking about in that case is in those moments, there's such an emotional trigger. It's a place I've gone so many times that I get stuck in or people, you know, can get stuck in that. It's like, okay, let's step back from this, get back to an, to a sort of an even level. And then we can look at what are the things that we have to do or can do to feed that good wolf or to make more lasting transformational change. I think that is a really great point is that we need to recognize when that wolf is so scared. So yeah, get back to dry ground and then start, you know, feeding that good wolf or start reconnecting there. Another way Gandhi has to bring him back up, he used mantras to help call that 
connection forth as well. So that's something also I've been kind of playing with is to create a connection to a ward. And I'm actually using the one that he used to use. He, um, his old housekeeper, when he was a child, told him to repeat the phrase Rama, 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 basically R-A-M-A to himself as whenever he was scared or anything was going on. And he later used it when he was killed to, he, to bless his attacker, which obviously was a pretty powerful example of, I guess, someone who who truly learned how to connect to that good place within ourselves, that peaceful place, even when situations were really terrible. Yeah, exactly. And I think mantras are absolutely another approach that that works for that. It gives the mind something to work on. They've never worked as well for me because maybe it's the nature of my brain that it can be so busy. There's not enough in that mantra, or at least I've not done them enough, that it that engages me. So I flip back off somewhere else. And what I found is by concentrate, you know, at least for the first little bit by sort of giving myself my brain a task. But I I agree. I mean, lots of people have tremendous success with with mantras. I know I'm brand new to it. I literally just read that like last week, but <laughs> it's been something I try to to connect to. And if I can if I can start to pay attention to my intuition while saying the word, right? So what I'm trying to do is by saying that word, connect to that. I feel very much in my gut. Other people feel in their hearts, but I definitely try to pay attention to that place within myself because I literally experience my intuition in my stomach and my gut. And so I try to say the word and think about that place and what that feels like so that as I hopefully we'll see here. I don't know, but hopefully I'll be able to connect that. So by saying that word, I trigger that place within myself rather than the fire hydrant going off in my head. Right. I think that would be worth seeing if you can make that work. Um, I know you're friends with Christopher Carter, who we had on the episode uh, a few episodes ago as well. He's really into mm-hmm. the whole meditation practice as a way to basically control or put a leash on that bad wolf. Have you done anything like meditation or thought about it? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in meditation. Stephen Covey used that phrase that came from Viktor Frankl between stimulus and response is a, is a space, you know, and in that space lies pretty much all our, our choices and our human freedoms. And I believe that meditation for me cre- it increases that space. It's like the leashes for the wolves. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just gives me enough. The more I do it, there just seems to be enough of a, I think I've gotten the hang of not reacting externally to things that happen to me. Like you can say something to me and I'm very unlikely to just, you know, be like, you know, screw you. I mean, it's, you would have to, I don't know what you'd have to do to get, <laughs> you know, but that just does, I've, I've kind of got a handle on that restraint of that. But what I, what, what is harder is the internal reaction and what, what meditation is giving me more and more is that I have a reaction or a thought and then I have just a small space where I go, is that true? Is that the approach I want to take? Or is, is that the, where I just can sort of question what my immediate reaction or response is. And so I'm a big believer in meditation. It has been hard as hell for me though. I'm not one of those people that finds meditation itself to be a very calming event. Um, I know some people, it's true, some people are like, I just bliss out and that is not my experience. And that made it really hard. I, you know, I meditated on and off for years. You know, I went on silent retreats and I could never, I could just never get a consistent practice going until I finally went, you know what? 
It has nothing to do with the 15, 30 minutes or an hour that I'm meditating. The experience I have during that time is irrelevant. It's what happens the other 23 hours of the day. You know, I think of it like brushing my teeth. Whether I, when I'm brushing my teeth, I might, maybe it's enjoyable, maybe it's not. That's not why I'm doing it, right? I'm doing it for good dental hygiene. And so I think of meditation as good mental hygiene. And so once I stopped thinking that I should be getting somewhere and having some experience, all of a sudden, all the pressure on it went away. And I went, all I have to do is sit here. And when my mind wanders off, as soon as I can, bring it back. If it wanders off a thousand times, irrelevant. Not, you know. And I, I stopped thinking there was something I was going to get out of it. And that helped me. And once I got that, you know, I've been a daily meditator pretty much since. Oh, that's wonderful. It's like Zig Ziglar always said, only floss the teeth you want to keep. <laughs> so it's not because you, you know, love flossing that you're doing it. It's because you want to keep your teeth. It's because you want to have your sanity. That's my experience. And I think it's, a, it's important for people to hear that because a lot of people who sit down to meditate think that it's supposed to be enjoyable. Again, some people really do have that experience right away. Some people get it over time. But it was not my experience for a long time. And so I would give up. What I am realizing is, yes, I think there's a huge doorway, right? There's just, if you talk to people that have any sense of real power, not just force in their lives, and you ask them what they're going through, often they'll mention meditation. So it's kind of like, yeah, we never want to do it, but the people that we admire often do. <laughs> so I, instead of trying to psych myself into this, like sitting for the specific time and the idea of trying not to have thoughts, I really, for me, am using, I wouldn't even call it meditation, but I'm spending time watching my thoughts because more than anything, I think I don't necessarily need to never have the fire hydrant. I just need to understand when it's going off. Exactly. You just made the, there's a lot of different kinds of meditation, right? So I think that's the first thing that for people that are thinking about meditation is to realize that is a term for a whole bunch of techniques. And what you just described, I think, is known as insight meditation, where you, you learn to pay attention to different parts of things. But the analogy that I love is to think of sort of stepping behind a waterfall, sort of behind the waterfall and the rock, and just you just watch that water just rush by you as you stand there. And that's your mind. And it's not about controlling it. It's about just seeing it. Yes. If, and if, if that's what's happening, if your brain is just going, you're watching it and maybe your brain calms down a little bit and you're watching that. The way I meditate these days, because most people recommend focusing on the breath and that just never worked for me very well. So what I do is I try and do it outside if I can, but I sit and I just try and pay attention to everything that I can perceive. So, oh, that was the sound of a cricket. Oh, that was the sound of a bird. Oh, my back hurts. Oh, there went a car going by. Oh, I really wish that I was going to be going to that thing on Friday with Sally because, oh, there's my head hurts again. Oh, did you hear that car? I mean, and that's it. That's all I'm doing. And there's no, there's no forcing. Now, if I wander off, if I follow that thought, well, I wish I was doing this thing on Friday because if I did that, then when I realize that I followed that thought down a path, I just go, you know, what's around me right now? Oh, look, there's the bird again, or there's the crickets, or there's the car. And that, for me, unlocked meditation for me, because it's not about not having thoughts. That's impossible. I love that. I'm so glad to know that I guess I've actually been meditating, even if I haven't thought I've been meditating. I just sit there and watch it, because the more I can watch it, the more I can catch myself, like you said, the other 23 hours of the day. 
I mean, the goal of meditation, I don't think, is to spend an hour where you get really clear. That's nice if you do, but it's exactly like you said. It's so that we can be more conscious the rest of the time about what our mind is doing. That's why there's certain people, there's a, a woman, she was on on being a show that I love by Krista Tippett. And I don't remember the woman's name, but she said, look, mindfulness is not about sitting meditation, right? It's about being present to where you are. And I agree with that 100%. What I've learned is that by the discipline of doing some sitting meditation, it makes it easier to drop into those things more and more in my life and more easily and, and be able to stay in what, what does it mean to be in the present moment? And for me, it means I'm acutely aware of what's happening physically, mentally, emotionally. I'm just right there, what's inside, what's outside, and I'm sort of trying to take it all in. And one other little exercise just to build on what you said about listening and being completely perceptive. I read a book called The Happiness Trap and one of the exercises they talked about, which is a quick, a quickie way to do what, exactly what you were saying, but it kind of gives you a little format if for people that want a little bit of a, a structure. So it's the idea of paying attention to five sounds that are going on in this moment, five things you see in this moment, and five things you feel. That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's the exact same. It's the exact same thing. And that works in, in the same way. And I think, I mean, honestly, the, I, I sort of stumbled onto, I mean, not that this isn't a way of meditating that people talk about or that isn't taught in certain cases, but I sort of stumbled onto it by doing the exact same thing. I would say, all right, um, as I walk down this hall, I'm going to see all the instances of red that I can see. The other one that I found to be really interesting is um, I find the shower to be a really good way to do a sort of mindfulness exercise because a lot of times we say, people say, well, just do a body scan, do a scan of your whole body and feel the whole thing. And I kind of just blow through that pretty quick because for most of my body, I'm not really feeling much of anything in it. But when I'm in the shower, you can start with your feet and you realize that there's water running down and dropping and there's it's flying all over the place. And that was a way for me to sort of get a little bit, train that muscle a little bit more because there is a sensation on almost every part of your body. And if you start with your feet and you make you work your way up, you will be able to go, oh, there is something happening with my knee. What is it? Oh, look, my thighs feel, I mean, and that helped me. And I still go to it sometimes. That's a great idea. Thank you for sharing that. What doubts or resistance have you had to face in your life? Now, obviously, we've touched on a lot, so we don't have to go very deep into this, but is there anything specifically? I guess you've been saying it's about this idea of comparison, maybe. I don't want to fill in the blank for you, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, the doubts and resistance are, yeah, they're comparison. They are um, uh, some version of I'm not good enough to do this, you know, uh, whether it's I'm not smart enough or I'm not strong enough or I'm not whatever it is or that person would never, you know, I could never get that job or I could never do this thing. It's, I mean, that's pretty much, I mean, the main resistance in my life is always been internal. I mean, sure, there's some externally, but in comparison, if I had to add up where the, where the drag on my life has been, it's been my own mind far more than anything outside of me. And it's all some variation on I'm not good enough, or I'm good, but I'm not as good as, or that guy, you know, it's, it's really easy if you look at doing anything like, okay, I'm going to be a podcast host. You can go out there and there are some people that are good at this, right? They're funny, they're engaging, they're entertaining. And you're just, and I, and I can be like, I can't do that, right? I can't, I can't. And then I, I go, and when I follow that train of thought, it's very discouraging. But what I can do is go, 
okay, well, you know what? What's important is that I be me. Yeah, you can't you can't be them. You're not supposed to be them. Otherwise, you'd be them. <laughs> right. I'm going to bring me and you know what? I'm going to get better. And if I don't do it, then it's surely that I will never be able to do that if I don't keep trying. And so that's one of those where I just have to shut that voice off. Like, I'm not listening to you right now. In a recent episode I listened to, you said you have to act your way out of it. Yeah, you, it's, a, it's an old saying that says you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. In sobriety, that's used a lot because in the early days of recovering from alcohol or, or drug addiction, you're a disaster area. Your brain is ruined by and large. And so if you sit there and ask your brain, what should I do or what, what's the right thing to do? You're going to get terrible answers because that's how you ended up <laughs> as an addict. And so what it is, is it's like there are actions to take. Go to a meeting every day. doesn't matter whether you think it's a good idea or not. Just go. You know, call your sponsor every day. You may think that's a terrible idea. doesn't matter just do it. And that applies in a lot of areas of life. If you break it out, you know, I often say asking our mood to guide us is a terrible idea. You know, particularly if you're prone to low mood, I mean, I'm prone to low mood. And so if I let my mood decide what happens or what gets done or where I spend my time, that that's a recipe for disaster. I have to come up with what I think are the right things to do in moments where I'm pretty clear and then just carry that plan out. Yeah, nonviolent, non-cooperation, right? You don't fight it, but you don't act on it. <laughs> yep, exactly. All right, so what would you tell someone just starting out on this journey? Again, this journey could could mean a lot of things, but I think I would say, you know, start where you are. It's, it's an Arthur Ashe quote, and I may get, I may get him mixed up, but it's start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And what I love about that quote is it means that wherever you are and whatever circumstance you find your life in and whatever the thing is you want to do, whatever journey you want to go on, you can start right now with what you have, where you are. And if you think you can't start until certain things line up a certain way, the odds are good that you'll never start. And so whatever you've got at your disposal now, start. And those steps can be so microscopically small. It doesn't matter. But if you do a couple microscopically small steps, they start to build. And the other thing that starts to happen, I think for a lot of people who struggle with being on a journey or achieving something is we've told ourselves so many times we're going to do these things and then we don't do them and we don't trust ourselves. We don't believe ourselves. And by doing these really small things in that direction, we start to build that confidence and trust back. But it's important that they be like I tell people who want to start meditating a minute. Just do a minute every day this week. That's all you got to do. I know that sounds silly, but then next week you could do two or five. And before you know it, you're at 20 every day. But if you start with 20, if you're like me, you're not going to do it. You'll do it one or two days and go, God, this sucks. I'm not good at this. And you'll quit. And then you'll feel bad because you quit. And it'll be another thing that goes on that list of like, I don't finish anything. And so I found like micro habits, like break it down to the smallest level, succeed at it and then build. Oh, that's so well said. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I think we could probably do this for hours, but <laughs> in uh, deference to the listeners, we will uh, we'll cut it here. And there you have it. Thank you, Eric, so much for coming on the show and sharing such awesome insights. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to thank Eric for coming on the show or send him a message on Twitter, feel free to send him one at one you feed. So it's, it's pretty much the one you feed without the 
in front of it. So it's at one you feed. And if you would like to support the show, please go over and leave a review on iTunes. I haven't asked for that in a long time, but it totally helps. I, first of all, very, very much appreciate and look for them every day and read them and appreciate them because I put a lot of time into the show and it also helps potential guests see how much the show is loved, which means that I have a better chance of getting even more amazing guests on the show in the future. So if you'd like to help me out and just kind of do something nice for me as a as a thank you for all of the shows I've been putting out there, I'd really, really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great week. 